This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, a special program focused on indigenous issues with in-depth interviews about both Brazil and Bolivia. One of those interviews takes us deep into the Amazon rainforest and looks at key environmental issues facing native groups. But first, Vanessa Jesus Gonzati joins us for our weekly roundup of news from around Latin America. Iran launched a Spanish-language TV network as an effort to reach out to friendly governments in Latin America. Iran's president said Tuesday that it will help Iran compete against the U.S. and other Western news sources. I hope this network will be a medium for all of those that are seeking justice, for all sovereign nations in the world, for artists and politicians, and that it becomes a tool to help them negotiate. This comes after Iranian President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad's four-nation tour of the region in January that included Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua, and Ecuador. Washington and Europe have recently imposed tougher sanctions on Tehran over its controversial nuclear program. The new broadcasting company, Ispan TV, will have news, documentaries, movies, and Iranian films 24 hours a day. Iran already broadcasts in five other foreign languages, including English and Arabic. Mexico's ambassador in Venezuela was kidnapped Monday and released hours later. Four men abducted diplomat Carlos Pujalte and his wife while they were leaving a party before midnight in Caracas. The kidnappers freed them four hours later in a poor district of the country's capital, and police also found Pujalte's car. The ambassador and his wife are unharmed. Venezuela has one of Latin America's highest murder rates, and the number of kidnappings has been on the rise in recent years. The Mexican government is charging a military general and 20 of his soldiers under his command with human rights crimes. Manuel Moreno Avina's soldiers testify that torture, kidnapping, drug trafficking, theft, and extrajudicial killings have taken place. Attorney General Jesus Gabriel López Benítez says the general will face trial in a military court. This is a rare case in Mexico's usual impunity towards the military. The U.S. offers Guatemala financial aid to help dispose of seized chemicals that were meant for methamphetamine manufacturing. The Guatemalan government started moving 310 tons of detained chemicals to a military base, but it is awaiting legal and environmental tests before deciding on destroying them. Mexico's powerful Sinaloa cartel has been extending its production of methamphetamine into neighboring Guatemala in recent months. Brazilian President Dilma Rousseff says that it is an internal Cuban matter whether or not dissident blogger Joanny Sanchez is allowed to leave the island. Even though Brazil granted Sanchez a visa, Rousseff said during a visit to Cuba that it is not her place to raise human rights concerns. Her trip focused on trade and cooperation. Sanchez hasn't been allowed to leave Cuba. She was just nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize, along with Cuban opposition leader Osvaldo Pallá, for calling attention to the importance of freedom of expression as the foundation for peace and liberty. Authorities arrested a man for stealing part of a glacier in Chile. They found five tons of ice in his truck, which they believe came from the Jorge Montt Glacier in Patagonia. 
Apparently, he was taking it to Santiago to use as ice cubes in expensive drinks. The glacier is protected by law, but in recent years, it has been getting smaller, possibly due to global warming. This is Vanessa Jesus Gonzari reporting for Latin Pulse. And now the indigenous, the environment, and the Amazon. Last week, Dr. Eve Bratman joined us to discuss extractive commodities. She teaches about development issues at American University's School of International Service. This week, she's back to discuss issues of the environment and indigenous rights in the Amazon. My main concern with what's Brazil's drive for growth is is that it comes at a very real social and environmental cost. And the Brazilian government has tried to walk a very fine line of of doing sustainable development over the the past 20 years. In the face of the upcoming Rio Plus 20 conference, Brazil is supposed to be having a shining environmental record to as it hosts the world uh, again on environmental issues and the question of sustainable development. The reality on the ground in the Amazon is quite different, however. Many of the Brazilian government's initiatives uh, in the past five years or so have involved road paving projects, which are sometimes well-loved by the people living closest to them, but are a source of great concern for the environmentalists, who on the one hand supported the idea of creating conservation areas all around the borders of those roads so that the roads don't lead to further encroachment on, on the forest itself. Following from the creation of those wonderful conservation areas, the Brazilian government decided to then make dam building its top priority so that it could have more energy as it looks towards hosting this international conference as well as, of course, the World Cup and the Summer Olympics. And the sixth largest economy in the world. And the sixth largest economy in the world, of course, which is growing at an incredible rate these days. And so the the latest of these dam building projects is what's called the Belomonchi Dam. It's on the Shingu River, which is currently the, the last undammed river that is a, a major tributary to the Amazon itself. And this dam is slated to be the third largest dam in terms of its hydroelectric production in the world. I'm a little bit skeptical even of those production numbers because they varied greatly from the the various reports that I've read coming out from from the companies that are proposing to build the dam. But that said, this dam will have really devastating environmental impacts as well as social impacts, and, and the Brazilian government has tended to turn a blind eye towards many of them. In so doing, it has fired many of the officials within the, um, the, the FUNAI, the agency that protects indigenous peoples, as well as within IBAMA, the Environmental Protection Agency in Brazil, because of the object- objections that those very officials have raised to the project by doing their job. Essentially, the government is firing people who object with its larger mission. And this is surprising to me, um, the Rousseff government being a leftist government and uh, Dilma Rousseff o- almost being handpicked by the by the previous government, the Lula da Silva administration. So um, we talk about environmentalism and you talk about them attracting a big UN international conference there mm-hmm. to show Brazil as and Brazil is held up in many quarters as a as a sustainable green development country. You're undercutting that a bit. I, I had once looked to Brazil as, as a real inspiration environmentally, and that's what first drew me to do research in the country. And I, I have not given up hope that Brazil really will make some of the, the smarter decisions here. However, 
I, I think Juma's election has been uh, a, a really fracturing issue for many of the, the activists that I'm closest with uh, on the ground in the Eastern Amazon in particular, where their PT party loyalties have led them to have some confidence and endorsement of Juma, but at the same time, their, their local and environmental concerns have often been undermined. And frankly, I think it will come to haunt President Hussef in the future. Um, Marina Silva, the former environmental minister, gave her a run for her money in the past election. And my Amazonian friends are, are I think, severely disappointed in how President Hussef has been on, on many of the issues closest to their hearts. And, and I suspect that the Green Party will, um, will be much more of a contender as we look to, to Brazil's politics in the future. In that answer, you mentioned the PT, and for those who don't follow Brazil, that is the initials for the Workers' Party. Um, and so, when you when you give us this this long history, and then we attach Workers' Party, that 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 does seem like a ironic contradiction. But I'm wondering if you could tell us um, a story or or something very specific from your area of research that that touches on these particular issues that 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 you could share with us? Sure. Um, my research is largely based in a city called Altamira, which uh, once was famous for being uh, the centerpiece of the movie Bye Bye Brazil. In that movie, an indigenous woman, at the it's a sort of climax of the film, an indigenous woman sits on the banks of the Xingu River and drinks from a Coca-Cola can and says, Bye Bye Brazil. These days... That sh- that's the Shingu River that is about to have the Belamonchi Dam. And in about 18 indigenous tribes will be affected by the, the flooding of this dam. The social movements in the region have fractured over the dam. There is some very strong opposition from the movement of Shingu Vivo, whereas some of the longtime people who had um, been PT party loyalists and prior had been opposed to the dam, decided to ultimately come down in favor of it because along with the dam was the promise of finally asphalting the Trans-Amazon Highway, which has for decades been a a dream of theirs and also a a project that alternately has been a priority for, for different Brazilian governments. And so these are some of the fractures that are starting to emerge within the, the world of the Brazilian social movements that I, I think will play out in important ways. And that has also affected the creation of new conservation areas where, where just in 2005 in that same region, an American nun named Dorothy Stang was assassinated for her activism in favor of land reform. And then immediately thereafter, as international attention was focused on the region, the Brazilian government decided to create in that same region although not directly where the nun was assassinated, landmark areas that are, are designated for conservation, new parks and forests and extractivist reserves. And meanwhile, this is all the same geography that is being affected by these new road paving and, and damming projects. This presents a, a, almost um, um, a two-faced way of looking at Brazil. On the one hand, you're, you're telling us about um, large set-asides, conservation areas, but on the other development that seems to be problematic. Um, is, is this just Brazil trying to find its way, or is there something else going on here, in your opinion? My sense of it is that the Brazilian government does want to have its cake and eat it too. And so 
as much as it's walking the line of trying to appease the international and the the local concerns for environmental preservation and and most of the Brazilian public actually doesn't want to see the forest code be gutted. Most of the Brazilian public has signed a petition against the Belo Monte Dam. I think the Brazilian government is is uh, strategically ignoring many of its most fundamental democratic principles in its politics as, as the, the imperative for growth seems to have triumphed. Where do you see this going? It's hard to look into a crystal ball and have a very clear answer on this one, but my, my sense is that uh, there will come a point where, where social movement activists and outcry will become so great that it's hard to ignore on the Bellamonchi Dam project in particular. Um, I, I have seen in the past year a huge increase in the amount of media attention given to the story. James Cameron, who, who was the famous for the movie Avatar, came down to this region and said, this is a real-life Avatar happening. And so did Arnold Schwarzenegger and, and many other people who are not just international actors um, or, or politicians, but also at local levels. Uh, the concern has been really amped up, and I think it's going to be hard for the government to sustain uh, towing the line as it has on this one um, as, as the project looks more and more imminent at the same time the pressure is all the greater. Um, it's difficult to stay optimistic, but I, I do think that the, the pressure will keep amplifying, and I, I sincerely uh, hope that the democratic state will be responsive. You brought up the issue of violence earlier, and certainly when we talk about Brazil, violence is never too far away, uh, even in the urban settings, maybe especially in the urban settings. Um, do you see that coming to play as this goes toward resolution? There have been recent assassinations in the south of Pará over, over some of these same issues, and it would be a horrible travesty to see some of these same situations continue. Uh, so... While I lament that, that violence has so far too often been a reality in, in the Brazilian Amazon when it comes to these land struggles and, and development struggles, um, oftentimes that's one of the main ways that the, the government has um, started to capitulate under pressure. Well, Eve Bratman, thank you for joining us again today on Latin Pulse. Eve Bratman, a scholar at American University, who studies development issues, especially in Brazil. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Rick. Coming up, indigenous politics in Bolivia. We'll go in-depth with one of the experts. Democracy is synonymous with independence. Independence is synonymous with emancipation. Emancipation is synonymous with sovereignty. Sovereignty is synonymous with superiority. Superiority is synonymous with arrogance. Arrogance is synonymous with domination, and domination is synonymous with dictatorship. Dictatorship always finds its way. Amnesty International. Learn. Indignate. Act. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. And now, excerpts from a pre-recorded interview with Rob Albro, an anthropologist dealing with public policy issues who teaches at American University. Elbro is an expert about Bolivian politics and about how indigenous rights are the centerpiece of the presidency of Bolivia's Evo Morales, one of the first presidents in Latin America to come from the indigenous community. 
So we're talking about um, 36 recognized groups, uh, constitutionally recognized groups, but that's deceptive. If we talk about language groups, we're really talking about three primary groups, Quechua speakers, Aymara speakers, and Guarani speakers. And these are uh, geographically located with Quechua and Aymara speakers in primarily the highland parts of the country, Guarani speakers in the lowland areas around the city of Santa Cruz and elsewhere, as well as Spanish speakers. So many of these people are bilingual, trilingual, uh, routinely. Um, The Quechua and Aymara speakers often are also um, people that we would identify not primarily or firstly necessarily as indigenous, but as you know, campesinos, as sort of peasant penny agriculturalists. Aymara uh, communities have been much more proactive in, since 2000 in particular in staking out political space as Aymara, uh, including in urban contexts like the um, uh, companion city of El Alto, which is uh, kind of next to the capital city of La Paz. So El Alto might arguably be said to be the indigenous capital of the world. Um, it's a thoroughly Aymara-speaking city. It is grown from almost nothing in 1950 to be close to a million people today. And it's a, a large urban agglomeration where many of the uh, direct action activities through the earlier years, 2000, 2005, took place. would like to ask you about where you see the indigenous movement hemispherically in Latin America at, at this time? I think there's three things. One would be to look at constitutional change in the region. And what we've had is uh, constitutional reform across a variety of different nations. I'd point to Colombia's constitution in 1991, maybe as precedent setting, and then through Mexico and elsewhere. Um, in different ways, each of these constitutions has enshrined a version of a kind of multicultural um, agenda. They provide different, um, you know, kind of checks and balances and degrees of representations and autonomy and recognize indigenous peoples to some extent or or more here or less there. Um, All of that was an important precedent for the Bolivian constitution, which I think is still the watershed. The difference there is the difference between sort of representing cultural rights generically and indigenous rights specifically, which is what that constitution has done. Um, So I think there's movement there. Um, sort of on the legal and constitutional front. I think that Latin America has been unique historically with respect to its success in uh, transnational indigenous advocacy. Very early, beginning in the 1970s, and in conjunction with human rights movement and to a certain extent in response to different development initiatives across the region, indigenous peoples were able to um, uh, kind of create, uh, operate within both the hemispheric and global space reaching uh, different communities um, as a, a voice um, in, in, in the human rights agenda. But only very recently, 2007, has the Universal Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples actually been um, put into force. That is a UN instrument. We know that declarations, as opposed to um, other kinds of instruments, are aspirational documents. It's not a binding document in any way. But it was in the works since as early as 1993, and it took that long to get done. What that means is that there's now an international multilateral framework that didn't exist before around indigenous rights as such rather than minority rights or cultural rights or whatever else or civil liberties questions. That's a big difference. 
governments with large indigenous populations use instruments like that much more um, proactively now that they're available. What are the key places, the key spots for indigenous rights and where you have um, larger populations of indigenous peoples? Obviously in the United States we're used to a population that's one percent or less of the total population. That's not the case in Latin America. <clears throat> Absolutely not. And that's actually been, you know, one of the major differences between Latin American countries. So when we point to Bolivia, Ecuador, Peru, Guatemala, to a certain extent Mexico, we are talking about countries with either majority indigenous populations or large minority populations that have significant demographic impact on the national politics of the country. Um, and those countries uh, have had varying, uh, have had different stories with respect to the role that indigenous politics has played. We know that in Bolivia, we could talk about indigenous identity at the level of uh, constitutional law and the current administration. Um, in Ecuador, we can point to strong, well-organized um, and historical continuity of, of, of an indigenous party, Pachacutec, but which has not successfully acceded to power or, or executive office and has, in some respects, kind of been increasingly marginalized over time. In Guatemala, we, we find a very different scenario where we have a large amount of indigenous people but absolutely no national political power whatsoever. The reasons for that have everything to do with you know, Guatemala's unique political history, the, the counterinsurgency war in, in the 80s and 90s, and the inability or, or the constant repression, the continued repression of, uh, of its indigenous population up to the present. So in linking these things, are there linkages? I guess that's the better question at this point. Are there linkages between the political <clears throat> situations in these countries, or do we have to look at them each individually? Um, or is it something that we can look at Bolivia as that break that we talked about uh, and their influence moving forward to their neighbors and then maybe northward and southward? I think, let's look at just, I know we talked about Bolivia, but Evo Morales, uh, one of the aspects of his identity as a, as a grassroots leader and then national politician is that he is incredibly well-traveled. And m much of that travel has been to participate in you know, indigenous advocacy meetings, organizations with counterparts, uh, meetings with, with organizations and counterparts in other countries. So you build these networks and these relationships, and they're really, they, they do exist. When, when Morales was elected, one of the first people to salute him was Rigoberto Menchu in an, an eloquent letter saying, from Guatemala. From Guatemala, who won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1992 or three, and, uh, you know, what's interesting, though, is to compare the political trajectories of those two since then. Manchu has attempted to do something we, we could say was somewhat similar to what Morales has, has done or what people have done in Ecuador, build a permanent political instrument of an indigenous sort in Guatemala. The space at the national level just does not exist right now for that to happen, and she's been a fairly unsuccessful national political candidate, hasn't been able to gain... Um, an electorate hasn't been able to gain a, a broader uh, vote count. So um, I'm, I'm thinking about what has happened under the Humala administration in Peru, where they've signed some national documents recently of trying to give more indigenous identity and rights within the national discussion and, and political sphere. Um, 
is that something that is also related to their neighbor Bolivia or is this just part of the larger trend? No, I think so. I mean, I think one of the things that happens is that indigenous movements are quite aware of one another. And in addition to having regular communication and interaction and in, indeed often attending the same events and participating in certain transnational or hemispheric efforts together, at least since the 80s into the 90s, um, Morales was looked to as, you know, watershed and people are emulating um, the success that, that he's had in Bolivia. If it can happen in Bolivia, it, it should be able to happen here. I think political leaders in other countries with large indigenous populations, even if they are not themselves indigenous, understand this is a demographic to be reckoned with. And in Mexico in one way, and in Peru in another, that's been made manifest. If, since you bring up the Mexican case, has Mexico really dealt with its South, with its, um, with its indigenous South? Um, or has it just marginalized it and put that aside under the last two conservative administrations? Yeah, it really hasn't. And what's surprising is, given the importance of the Zapatistas in the 1994-1995, um, up through the San Andres Accords in 1996, and the extent to which they were able to bring Mexico's uh, administration to a place where they would have to take account of indigenous questions, the um, legacy of that is ambiguous. One thing I would point to, however, is, and this includes all of these countries we've discussed, there's a permanent tension between how you're going to identify these demographics. In Mexico, this is a, a class culture or class ethnicity question. You know, the, the word to identify most of the folks we would, tall, we would call indigenous movement activists in, in Mexico is still campesino, which could be understood to be a class-based term. The Zapatistas themselves, when they launched their revolt on the, the January 1st, 1994, when the NAFTA Accords were signed, didn't think of what they were doing in indigenous terms until later. They thought of themselves as, as, as peasant agriculturalists. First, they came into their indigenous identity as things progressed because they had international allies for whom that was an important distinction. Right? So they were able to make, uh, build relationships with them. I'm just wondering if some of how indigenous politics happen uh, in various indigenous groups, obviously different politics, different places, different identities, but indigenous politics tends to be less vertical, more horizontal, in, in more inclusive in, in, in the discussion. Is this maybe why the future of indigenous politics hemispherically looks amorphous, we're not sure where it's going because it moves at a much different pace than westernized politics. Well, I think you've hit on something very critical, which is that one of the things that's happening right now in Latin America is that it's transitioning from a previous era where U.S. policy was something different, where the role of the United States was something that it might not be quite right now, where uh, you had what we might call neoliberal, democratic, you know, kind of Washington consensus models. Indigenous uh, politics has been used at the national level as a way to counterbalance these things. So when we talk about horizontal versus vertical, it becomes a way of appealing to alternative democratic traditions in the region, um, which are felt to be uh, more democratic in the sense of uh, horizontal, in the sense of uh, participatory, in the sense of who has a voice, um, in the sense of how decision-making happens and the difference between vertical leadership and first among equals and so forth, all of which are thought to be 
um, values, political values built into, say, Aymara communities or uh, Mayan communities. The extent to which that's true varies tremendously. Indigenous movements and, and groups are diverse. But the reality is that that's the place where critiques of the democratic process have come from in the last decade, and they've been very fruitful. Well, a very complex situation and area for us to deal with today on Latin Pulse. That's all the time we have. Rob Alvaro from American University, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. Latin Pulse is available on the web and via iTunes. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, dot org, and then forward slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org forward slash Latin Pulse. If you'd like to comment on this week's program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud or on Facebook, or you can write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. Thank you for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For associate producer Vanessa Jesus Gonzati and announcer Victor Kilo, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escucha nosotros vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University's School of Communication with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music from Canary Productions and Bathtime Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2012, Las Rocas Productions.